What is up, Bitcoiners? It's CK, and man, we just had an epic, epic conversation with Greg Foss. I think we went for over an hour and a half, and we are in a rush to record this intro because we both have future meetings. Uh, Ansel, how, what was your take on this? Oh, it was awesome. Uh, he brings great expertise from a whole new market that we are trying to absorb and, and pick stuff out of. So uh, I love the interview. Let's get right into it. Yeah, let's get right into it. But before we do, I got to show Bitcoin 2021. I'm going to be there. Ansel's going to be there. Everyone is going to be at Bitcoin 2021, even the ones who are dunking on the conference online. Guess what? They're going to be at the conference too. Make sure to go get your ticket at b.tc forward slash conference. Go see all of our amazing speakers. Go hang out with all of your favorite Bitcoiners at the most amazing event of the year in the most free city in America. Miami, Florida. So guys, I can't recommend Bitcoin 2021 enough. It is going to be amazing. No matter what your Bitcoin preferences or speaking preferences are, it's going to be a full Bitcoin week in Miami, complete Bitcoin takeover. And man, it's going to be a lot of fun. We've announced the venue. It is Mana Winwood. In my opinion, the Winwood district in Miami is the best district in the city. Uh, and we got four hotels on the website with great deals. So go to b.tc forward slash conference, check out all the speakers, check out all the amenities and use promo code Satoshi to get 10% off. All right, guys, that is enough from me. That's enough from Ansel. Here is our hour and a half long interview with Greg Foss. It's absolutely amazing. Listen to every second of it. Greg, welcome to FedWatch. Very nice to meet you. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, gentlemen, and thank you very much for having me. All right. So over the last uh, few months, you've really made some big waves in Bitcoin with this uh, credit default swap type of um, valuation thesis for Bitcoin. But you've been making waves in Bitcoin for a long time. You, you didn't just show up six months ago. You uh, have been here for five, you know, six years. So can you detail for the audience, um, you know, your involvement early in Bitcoin and then maybe some of your past experience that uh, made you kind of the expert in the credit markets that you are? Sure. Well, thanks. Uh, you know, I'll start by saying that uh, very few people truly understand credit, and that's uh, that's dangerous uh, since credit is a prior claim uh, in a typical capital structure, as everyone knows. Uh, if it's a corporate capital structure, credit is the prior claim uh, over equity, which means if, equ- if uh, credit is not worth 100 cents on the dollar, the equity is worthless, and that's lost on very many people in the financial markets. Uh, even some equity analysts will do a research report without uh, without examining the levels at which uh, uh, the prior claim debt is trading. Uh, we have even financial reporters. Uh, I took issue with Joe Weisenthal uh, recommending Hertz Equity at one point to all his followers without understanding that the debt was trading at 40 cents on the dollar. So how is it possible that he could go out and recommend Hertz Equity? as some sort of uh, recovery value when the debt is trading at 40% apart. That is irresponsible reporting, in my opinion. It's also uh, dangerous for anybody who follows his advice. Uh, And, uh, you know, I'll I'll cut the man a break at times, although uh, on on other issues, he seems to do... uh, some flipping analysis as well, but not, not uh, picking on anyone here. Let's talk about how I got involved in Bitcoin uh, and why I believe credit is such an important consideration for Bitcoin. I started my career in 1988 uh, working for Canada's largest financial institution. 
the Royal Bank of Canada. And just to make a long story short, it was insolvent because of its uh, exposure to Latin American debt. And that's a pretty eye-opening experience for some kid that comes right out of business school and is proud to return to Canada to work in, uh, in the financial business. And you realize quickly that, uh, wait a minute, uh, there's something quite inherently uh, misunderstood even about the banking system. And I'm not just talking, obviously, about the Canadian banking system. The global banking system set up the same way. So since 1988, and I've told this story in other places, so I don't want to rehash it. But since 1988, I had essentially been looking for a solution to what I term the fiat Ponzi, because financial institutions, which are 25 times levered, which means they only have 4% equity capital against 100 against every loan. So that four cents or 4% against a dollar loan means that uh, as soon as that four cents is lost, whether in uh, due to default or due to uh, a mark to market uh, pricing, that equity is vaporized. That's pretty dangerous, right guys? You you think about that for a second. Are you think about the number of commercial real estate loans right now that uh, have certainly lost more than 4% of their, uh, of their value. So it doesn't mean that those uh, loans are going to default per se, but uh, if you think about it, 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 it's inherently risky. People don't understand how risky the banking system is. And the reason they don't is because they believe those most banks are too big to fail, right? We'll, we'll, we'll give them that. And they are correct. So, the fiat system backs up the banking system, meaning if the government steps in to rescue the financial institutions, it's generally by printing money. So since 1988, I was looking for a solution to this fiat system. And I did find it in 2016. Uh, you know, I'm fast forwarding pretty quickly there. But in the uh, in the interim, I, uh, I traded credit for over 30 years. Well, into 2016, it was almost 30 years. Um, I had worked on both the buy side and the sell side of the street, the buy side being two different hedge funds as a credit, uh, their credit lead credit uh, analyst, uh, excuse me, uh, lead credit portfolio manager. And, um, you know, I lived through 2008. That was pretty scary. 2008, 2009. That's when I really thought the financial system was going to melt. And it was very close to, uh, to actually melting. So what happened in 2008, 2009 was basically all the leverage in the financial system was just transferred onto the lev- the balance sheets of governments. And since then, the governments have done nothing but added to those deficits, which pure mathematics would tell me that uh, the fiat debasing is a certainty. And we can run through that math if you want, but uh, I did find Bitcoin in 2016. So that's true. And I only found Twitter about six months ago. And why is that? Well, I'm 57 years old. Um, you know, I graduated uh, both of my degrees uh, without really having used personal computing because it didn't exist. And so the kids that grow up these days with uh, social media platforms and the power and the iPhone uh, that's uh, unprecedented, uh, it, it's foreign to me. So I did find Twitter. Uh, it's an amazing spot. I've learned so much and I've met so many good people. So including, you know, the opportunity to be on this show. Yeah. So Greg, uh, we were just talking before, uh, we started recording and we talked about how you've really exploded onto the scenes since you've discovered Twitter. Obviously Twitter is a really fantastic way to network and to share really good ideas and for good ideas to get shared. Um, you know, one of the things that you have been pioneering is 
you know, you're pushing your understanding of the credit markets over to Bitcoin. You know, you just said and described how uh, with equities, if debt is not being priced one to one, then like you need to take that into your analysis. Um, and, you know, we've heard you in multiple podcasts say that the credit market is the real market, at least in the way that the fiat system is today. Can you explain that a little bit more and give us some color? Great question. Absolutely. Um, firstly, credit is just so much bigger than equities, right? Um, uh, all markets. Uh, if you look at uh, my specialty was high yield or junk junk bond. Uh, a typical a, a typical junk bond company will have uh, it'll be you know it'll have three times the amount of debt that it has market cap of equity. Um, if you think about that, then. And since equity is a subordinate claim, uh, if something bad happens in the equity markets, uh, it should very quickly flow through to the equity markets, including hedge funds like myself, that if they took a long position in the debt, they could actually go out and short the equity against it, right? If if you follow that uh, logic. And therefore, um, if you don't know what's going on in the credit markets, uh, then you know, you might make misleading claims like uh, like Joe Weisenthal did about Hertz equity. Um, you know, at the end of the day, globally, governments do not have equity, as we know. So those credit markets, which set the borrowing rate for all markets in the world that are subordinate to the government, so that's just about every single market there is, uh, those rates will flow down to state, municipal, mortgage-backed securities, corporates, senior corporates, loans, subordinate corporates, convertible bonds. All of this is essentially a cascading of, and I, I use the word cascading, perhaps uh, I don't want to mislead anybody. It's just uh, incremental pricing for the risk, Right. Um, you know, a government, typically the U.S. government, people think of it as being risk-free. Now, that's not true, but for a lot of time, uh, economic textbooks will tell you the risk-free rate. The U.S. Treasury 10-year is the risk-free rate. Well, uh, those textbooks are misinformed. Um, the U.S. Treasury is prone to a default risk. It's very low, but it's not zero. And you can look at those default rates, excuse me, credit default swap spreads in what's called the CDS market. Okay. And given that they're not zero, no one can say therefore that the U S treasury is actually a risk-free borrower. It's a very low risk borrower and every other market is incrementally more risky than that. And that's priced in a, in a spread to the U S treasury. So typically you'll, you'll hear treasuries plus, X basis points reflecting the spread of a, uh, of a, of a borrower. Now, again, the credit markets are far larger than the equity markets. And I often say credit is the dog and equity is the tail. And when the dog gets upset, that tail can fly around uh, pretty, pretty violently. So we, we talk a lot on this show about repo, or at least we have in, in the past. Um, now, and, and and the euro dollar system, you know, the, yes. the kind of money markets underlying everything. Yes. And it's the sizes is, is almost unfathomable, right? We don't really know exactly what the size is. So how do you like put in uh, an addressable market size on 
this credit market? Wow, that's that's uh, okay. So let's look at uh, the euro dollar market, and you you always want to look into. So you said repos. Uh, you always want to look to the plumbing of the system. That that plumbing is typically the first uh, component of the credit markets that will show um, stresses. And this is important because, uh, you know, you have spreads, a typical spread called the TED spread, for example, which is the euro dollar versus treasury bill spread, which is a spread that reflects stresses in the banking system. Okay. Uh, you'll have repos. You've mentioned that that is another part of the plumbing that if that gums up, uh, typically there are uh, repercussions. Uh, so yes, always look to the to the plumbing. I cannot put a size on that uh, because, as you mentioned, it's uh, c- certainly they're short term. Uh, they're typically overnight types of uh, of obligations. Um, so, but it is it, for any system like the banking system that is twenty five times levered. Uh, think about that for a second. Uh, that leverage gets reflected in the plumbing of the system, and when the plumbing gets gummed up because of counterparty concerns, uh, bank swap spreads will widen. Uh, and all of a sudden people become, un- they, they don't trust their counterparties. And, you know, uh, someone who said, I've been trading for you for t- with you for 20 years, for some reason, that trade may not settle or you, that is not a credit worthy counterparty according to your risk uh, committee. And that's, that trade stops. So that has repercussions, right? I think I jumped the gun. Christian, uh, did you have a follow-up on the uh, valuation thesis? Like, well, I, I'll just go into this. Sure. So um, how is the, how is this uh, CDS, how are these prices figured today? And in your thesis, like how does Bitcoin fit into this whole scheme that sure, they have going question. on? So, so let's, let's say, let's uh, define what a credit default swap is to begin with. It is a contract like an insurance contract between two sophisticated financial intermediaries that requires an ISDA. Uh, so it means, uh, you know, there's, there's a, count, a counterparty evaluation that's taken place uh, be, uh, for each credit committee or a risk committee at each, call it one hedge fund on one side and uh, a broker on the other side or Goldman trading with Deutsche Bank. Uh, they, they tend to, you know, know each other's uh, uh, well, settlement and risk and operations very well. But here, here's what a credit default swap is. It's, it, it, it references a, a, an obligation that trades in the market. But think about a typical corporate. Well, we'll just use it on a corporate. A typical corporate may have two or three bond issues outstanding. And let's just say, you know, one of those bonds is, uh, was issued as a 10-year and it's now got seven years left to maturity. And another one was uh, a 10-year, but it, it has two years left to maturity. Uh, and then another one's a new issue, and uh, we'll call it a, you know, just for argument's sake, a 15-year. Well, the CDS market is really neat because it focuses on a five-year term, and it's issued every 90 days. It rolls. And that means that the five-year term rolls down to a four and three-quarter year, a four and a half year, a four and a quarter, and a four years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, cetera, all the way down to uh, maturity. And that defines a credit curve within a 
uh, synthetic market, it references one of those bonds outstanding as the reference obligation. But what it does is it sets a synthetic credit borrowing curve or insurance. It's the same thing. Insurance premium or a credit spread rewards the seller of the protection. And when you sell protection, you're essentially, it's the same as owning a bond. Think of the insurance company as selling uh, insurance on a uh, on obligation, and if that obligation defaults, the uh, buyer of the protection is rewarded uh, for per- paying the premium over over the co- period of the contract. So, if something is quoted like uh, uh, a five year uh, CDS rate of a hundred basis points, means that you pay $100,000 a year to insure $10 million of credit on a reference obligation. So company XYZ, and that reference obligation will be defined if it does go into default, that will be the defining moment where the contracts need to be paid. But you have a $100,000 premium that insures $10 million worth of debt. If that debt defaults and typically a recovery rate, you know, we'll just pick a recovery rate of like four, 40 cents on the dollar, then that $100,000 premium, as soon as it defaults, is worth 6 million bucks, okay? Because 40% of 10 million bucks means you've lost $6 million. That is the CDS market. It's a brilliant market. It allowed for the construction of credit indices. Uh, that trade much like equity indices because equity, after all, there's no maturity on equity, but that's the problem with bonds, right? They, they matured and you didn't have a consistent, uh, uh, call it a consistent uh, uh, population, if you will, uh, to, to, to construct these credit curves. Well, synth- synthetically, the, the, there were young ladies at uh, JP Morgan that uh, defined this, brought it to the, uh, the market and said, would there be a market for this? And lo and behold, not just was there a market, it was a brilliant uh, solution. And people will say, Warren Buffett's not a fan because he goes, you know, what's, what's credit default swap insurance uh, or credit or uh, so, uh, default swap insurance is, he says, it's like uh, buying protection or buying insurance on someone else's house and then going out and trying to set it on fire. That That's not what it is at all. Okay. It really is an instrument to, to manage risk. Uh, you better know if you own the equity of a company that trades in one of these indexes, uh, because there's huge correlation risk. Um, and, and what it does, is just, it, it allows for efficient market pricing of credit risk. So that I described a corporation. Well, you have the same for countries and that's really neat because countries actually do default. I mentioned when I start, got my start in 1988, there were a number of Latin American and lesser developed countries that had all defaulted. That's uh, not a good thing, as you know, and uh, typically it coincides with a fiat uh, uh, devaluation and uh, destruction uh, of local economies and whatnot. But I put together a paper and I'd love to talk to you about it if you want to get granular about it. But yeah, based on the CDS market for sovereign credit, I believe that Bitcoin can be valued using current CDS rates on sovereign credits. I hit my mic. Very, very interesting. So the, the CDS, I, did, I wasn't aware of this. So the CDS made it like a homogeneous market. Is that what you're saying? Said. So, Beautifully okay. said. Exactly. It, it, it allows, it, it, it's the construction of a uh, 
credit curve for a given borrower, whether that borrower is a, a sovereign or a corporate that uh, is fluid. Uh, these these uh, contracts mature every 90 days, or I shouldn't say mature, they roll over uh, such that a new five-year is issued and that the old five-year becomes a four and three-quarter year. We mentioned but rolls down the curve to the one year. You can go out and purchase protection at the various levels. You could say, hey, I'm new to the market and I only want to purchase protection for one year. So you are actually purchasing the contract that was created four years ago. Okay. And there's always netting and a guy who owns the contract that was purchased four years ago that, that he purchased, he could turn around and sell it to you and go back and, and roll back up to the five-year term. Okay. So you, you said it, it, it makes a market homogeneous. It's, it's just a beautiful, honestly, a very beautiful uh, invention and really good for helping everybody manage risk, including banks, by the way. Banks are huge players in this. What if they have too much exposure to company XYZ at the senior level, at the loan level? They can go into the market and purchase protection against their exposure, okay? And they don't have to sell the loan. They can just go and purchase protection on that credit. It's really cool. But by nature, uh, the CDS uh, the CDS market is very interconnected. Right? It, it's correlation. That- I think that's what you're going to say. Exactly. But there's correlation in credit, right? Here's the neat thing. Credit guys are pessimists. And why is that? They should be because credit at new issue is asymmetric. It's asymmetric to the downside. When you issue or you purchase a bond at new issue, typically at a hundred cents on the dollar, you're purchasing a contract to receive a coupon. And let's say that coupon's 6%, just for a number. Well, if that company is doing really well and 6% was the price that the market thought was reflective of the risk, and all of a sudden the company starts doing really well, they don't increase that coup- in coup- that coupon, right? They don't. Yeah. They, that accrues to the equity. So that 6% coupon should maybe be a 5% coupon. Well, that bond price will increase above par to reflect that. But it never goes much above like 110 cents on the dollar. It's just the way the math works. The company will either refinance and take away that incremental upside return from you because it accrues to the equity holder uh, and, and they should refinance. Or this is the bad thing, the asymmetric return to the downside. Ooh, you know, 6% wasn't the right number after a few quarters or a year wow, this company really should be paying a lot more than that. So the bond price falls. And a lot of times that uh, decline in price will set off alarms with people. And maybe some of them will run to the equity market and say, short some equity for me. But a lot of other people just say, well, sell it. Uh, Selling begets selling. All of a sudden, that 6% coupon should have been an 8% coupon. Now the bonds are trading at 10%. And, you know, uh, and and a 10% yield, on a bond that's a, let's say it was issued as a 10 year, uh, that could lose that 200 basis points going from, uh, or, or yeah, uh, we said 6%. So that 400 basis points on a 10 year bond can probably knock about 30% off the price of a bond. So all of a sudden those bonds are trading at 70 cents on the dollar. Now it doesn't mean they're defaulted, but it's a, it's a reflection of the risk, right? And, and therefore, bond guys are asymmetric exposure to the downside. We're pessimists, say. We're not like a, you know, 
equities don't grow to the tree or don't grow to the moon. You know, I mean, our trees don't grow to the moon. We're like, protect my capital. Uh, these equity, you know, guys, if they don't understand that, well, Hey, sell me some protection, meaning I'm going to go out and buy, uh, uh, put options on your stock, for example, and all these things. And that's why it, it flows downwards. Okay. So how does Bitcoin then, um, you know, how does Bitcoin get a valuation from that market? Excellent question. So Bitcoin again is sovereign. So there's no subordinate, uh, there's no subordinate um, equity, but let's say that you assume that, and this is how I look at it after 30 years, I look at Bitcoin as an anti-fiat. Okay. So all fiats are correlated. In my opinion, they're all melting ice cubes. Why? Because they're all employing the same, uh, they're all over uh, levered, um, you know, and typically if the, you know, if one country is borrowing money and uh, their population is like, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's reasons to, uh, to be able to fund uh, uh, plans for fiscal expansion or whatever with the, uh, with debt, Um, you know, governments will take that because what does it do? What does it do? It curries favor with their voting population and therefore uh, maybe allows them to be in turn, you know, in, in uh, uh, office for another couple of years. Um, Lo and behold, most every country in the world is overly levered right now to the size of their economy. And therefore fiats are all debasing. That's just what's happening in the world. And it typically has happened historically, right? Well, Bitcoin, the beauty of Bitcoin, we can, don't need to go into it, but you know, the fixed supply, the 21 million, the beauty of that is it's anti-fiat in my mind. So how do you calculate a valuation of that anti-fiat? And I, using my credit uh, experience, I found it easy to imagine that, well, if the market is out looking for protection on these sovereign credits, which is a very defined level that changes on a daily basis. If you don't believe me, look at how the CDS of Turkey has traded in the last, uh, you know, couple of, uh, couple of trading sessions. Um, it should be, therefore, that's the price of insurance. And if you take that price of insurance and multiply it by the total outstanding obligations, of a given country, and that includes the funded and unfunded obligations, because let's use the U.S. as an example. The U.S. has $160 trillion of unfunded Medicare and Medicaid obligations. Guys, I mean, the size of that number is just astronomical. It has $30 trillion of government debt, but the unfunded obligations are five times that size. And people are counting on these, right? This is Medicare and Medicaid. This is for the population. Anyway, you take your CDS, you multiply it by its funded and unfunded obligations by country. It's not a difficult calculation. You adjust the CDS for the term that you think is a correct term for unfunded obligations. It's not five years. I mean, you know that these unfunded obligations are much further into the future. You adjust the CDS higher because typically the tenor of a CDS, as you go out in maturity, the spread widens. That's just the way the markets go. And you come up with a cumulative uh, valuation for Bitcoin, which I determined to be between 110,000 US per coin and 160,000 US per coin. Now, I'll just tell you that that is a number that can change uh, with the, the with the CDS spreads, no question. Uh, the 
the um, range is wide. 50,000 is pretty wide, but in the context of where I think Bitcoin can go, uh, 50,000 is not a wide range. It shows a valuation today that I can defend based on my 30 years practicing in the credit markets as a methodology for calculating intrinsic value. It is not the only model, but it's the model that I chose to promote. And, and when I say promote, I'm not trying to promote it. I'm trying to share it using my uh, experience. So Greg, let's dive into this a little bit more. Can you kind of hone into specifically what this number is trying to um, it, it is trying to tell um, you know someone who's reading it or using it to uh, as part of their analysis of Bitcoin? Um, you're saying that you think that the present value is between 100 and 150 thousand US. Value, that and, is correct. Yeah, and you're and you're kind of coming up with that value by um, effectively taking at today's uh, liabilities and risks from all these sovereigns. Is that correct? These are these, yeah, none of these numbers, these there's, there's nothing subjective about the, uh, about the CDS spread in the five year. There's nothing subjective about the total government liabilities. Uh, those are numbers that you can, uh, you can, you can, uh, they're readily, they're not always readily available, but they are definitely, uh, determinable. And as the CDS market, which changed on a daily basis, so for example, right now, the CDS, five-year CDS in the USA is right around 10 basis points, but that spread is, uh, has widened and narrowed over time um, it, with functions like, you know, just overall market uh, risk, like when in a year ago, a year ago today, right? When the US, uh, when, the, when the equity markets were getting uh, destroyed, that CDS uh, spread was substantially wider than it is now. Why is that? Well, it was risk off in everything, right? People were running for protection. Uh, risk off means you need to sell a long position, or if you own a long position, you need to hedge it by buying protection. So if you're a buyer of CDS, that typically pushes the spread wider. And that's, uh, that's what happened a year ago. But right now it's 10 basis points. I, I have a little story for you, if I may. Um, the US is AA plus rated by S&P. And Canada, my homeland, is uh, AAA rated by S&P. Now, if you guys uh, uh, traded in the credit markets, you'd realize that the credit agencies, uh, credit rating agencies is actually telling you that Canada is a better credit than the USA. You'd therefore expect if the credit rating agencies carried a whole lot of water or a whole lot of weight, they, that uh, the, the spread on Canada would be narrower, right, than the spread on the USA because it would be less risky. So if the USA is 10, you might expect Canada to be at nine or eight and a half, something like that. Don't want to get too, you know, we're not going to split the atom here, but the reality is Canada as a AAA credits trading at 37 basis points. Man, that's not good for my home country because the market is calling out the rating agencies and saying Canada is not even close to being a AAA credit. All right, guys, when that happens, if a downgrade ensues, it, be, it starts a spiral, right? And, and it, it, what happens if a downgrade ensues? There's a lot of uh, owners of bonds that cannot own anything rated below certain levels, which means selling begets selling, uh, confidence in the market wanes, you bring a new bond auction, and all of a sudden your bid to cover ratio is not as healthy as it was before. 
And this is this, this is go ahead. So yeah, if you go ahead, CK. No, keep going. I'm sorry. That was for me and Ansel. Keep going. I apologize. Oh, okay. So, so basically guys, here's all I'm saying, right? This, this market, these CDS rates are real. My valuation of Bitcoin's based on real market pricing of risk by sophisticated players that some of them, you know, they've only lived in a fiat world. The beautiful thing is Bitcoin as the anti-fiat, in my opinion, again, is protection against central bank shenanigans on a basket of fiat currency. Oh, man, I have so many questions. Um, Go ahead. My first thought is <laughs> my first thought is that uh, as the dollar weakens, then like, let's say the dollar index DXY weakens, yes. you would expect the CDS spreads in these emerging markets or in other, even uh, other G7 Beautiful. countries yeah. like Canada Beautiful. to increase. Correct, and then sir. as and then as the dollar strengthens, that's when, oh, my God, the, the spreads are, are collapsing. Is so so you, you're so spot on. And, but let's remember, it's fiat is all relative, right? Again, I said all fiats are melting ice cubes. It's just the rate of decay that is different amongst them. So DXY in, in itself is just like, you know, it, it's like comparing a bunch of things that are all decaying. Is that really what you, you know, well, I'm decaying at less than the guy next door. So I'm way better. No, you're not that good. You're still decaying. Right. Um, but yeah, DXY, which everyone quotes, uh, uh, is very important for, uh, confidence across the system, uh, of the USA, but also across the system because it has impacts on emerging market debt. No question. It's, there's a strong correlation between that. Well, where else would people go? Like uh, you just mentioned Turkey. Um, I'm so, sure that the CDS gosh, market for isn't Turkey. It amazing? I think you're going to answer tiny. your question yourself. Where else would yeah. people go? Yeah. And this is the basis of my thesis, guys. Every single fixed income investor in the world needs to own some Bitcoin as default protection. And you'll say, well, I'm only a corporate lender. I only lend to corporates. And I'll go, oh, so uh, corporate rates aren't impacted by a, a, a change in USA CDS or Canada CDS? Come on, you've been in the markets long enough. You know, as I said at the outset, these are all the base level and everything that's above it in terms of risk, higher risk, those spreads are impacted by the base level set by the government. Quite simple. So, well, if a company owns Bitcoin, that'll make their CDSs. Uh, Maybe. I don't think the market sees. So you're so smart, it. right? Yeah. But the markets aren't even close to interpreting all this yet. Okay. So, you know, Michael Saylor is an anomaly, as you know, and all these other guys. But it's not like the treasuries of every single c company have Bitcoin. And let's try not to overthink this. Most companies that should own Bitcoin right now don't have a ton of debt outstanding because they're cash rich. Okay. They have the ability, but what should a lot of these corporate treasurers do? I think this is where your question was going. They should actually go into the market, borrow fixed debt, fiat fixed debt. So if you can term borrow for five years, take out a loan or issue bonds in the public market for a five-year term, take the proceeds and buy Bitcoin. What are you doing? I term it capital creation using fiat destruction. Because if you just own, you owe that liability in fiat and it's debasing, dang, I want to pay, 
a reduced, you know, you're paying the same amount, but your purchasing power in five years is, is uh, substantially less, right? So you're paying back a debased uh, currency in five years. And if you have it in Bitcoin, well, the opposite is happening. Yeah, we, we've been calling that a speculative attack, right? There's, so that the same different idea. strokes for different folks, but yes. Uh, <laughs> now that's that's just neat. Look, I mean, Sailor, my God, the guy is like how many generations ahead of his time? Well, certainly certainly a couple, right? Um, and, and most other CFOs, first of all, you know, they, they believe what they read. Uh, oh, Bitcoin, this Bitcoin, that speculative drug money. You guys, the FUD is, is still existent. It's only 12 years old. You got to understand, look, I'm 57. All right. 12 years for me is only one third the time I've been involved in financial markets. <laughs> Dang, you know, like this is this is pretty new. I know you young guys don't think it's that new, but it is new. And don't forget who manages the big money in the world are guys that are my age. They're not your age. I mean, as smart as you guys are, it's just not your jobs yet. Maybe in the future it will be, but it's just not yet. Okay. So uh, I've heard you say on other podcasts that um, sovereigns can't do the same thing. Like sovereigns can't buy Bitcoin or sovereigns can't buy insurance out there in the CDS market on themselves. Right. Because that would be like, uh, wouldn't it be something like, God, darn, yeah. you know, cause it'll but be they can buy Bitcoin. Oh, Canada's buying credit uh, default insurance on themselves. <laughs> it's like, you know, he, he, they're pyromaniacs and they want to own fire insurance. Like, heck, I'm not selling it to them. Right. I mean, it would leak out. There's no, there's no secrecy in financial markets. Um, but they, they could, can't, what could sovereigns do? I think this is the other thing that you might, okay. I might be jumping over you. They could actually, instead of, you know, Canada sold all their gold. It would be wonderful if Canada actually had some brains and went out and bought Bitcoin. That's my opinion. I'll defend it till the grave because my kids are going to grow up in that, uh, uh, the legacy system. Uh, Canada having no gold is horrible. Uh, there's ways of solving that, uh, including getting some Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Is that going to happen? Oh, God it's it's such a low probability you hope it's not zero but it's in my opinion it's darn close and that's not good for my kids so how about uh other uh, like markets out there brazil south africa any of the BRICS or emerging markets do you sure. think any of them are uh, turkey geez someone's are, are gonna announce it at, so, turkey yeah. again is you know that's a uh excuse me that's a uh you know a bit of uh, it's a dangerous situation right now and you don't wish anything upon the population of Turkey, but uh, you know this is something that's been uh, it's it's been fermenting, if you will, fermenting for uh, a number of years. And this is what happens when when confidence in the system stops; it tends to stop really quickly. Excellent. I think Christian, you you have the next one. I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. So. Greg, you said that every fixed income manager needs to have some form of exposure to Bitcoin as anti-fiat insurance. What is the addressable market for Bitcoin in terms of like the total TAM that could potentially um, be under Bitcoin, in your opinion? And how and how 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 do you evaluate that? Right? Is it just fixed income, like? You know, not, where does opinion, it stop? It's not. So I, I start since, since the thesis was uh, using credit. And again, it, look, this is key. This is part of the reality that credit is a prior claim to equity. So if you're saying that the prior claim should have 
exposure to Bitcoin, doesn't it make sense, therefore, that the subordinate claims should also have exposure to Bitcoin, which would mean, you know, the equity markets, which are subordinate, uh, you know, other assets, um, uh, you know, is it is it possible to think that you should own, you, you should have a mortgage on your house that's secured by your house, and you shouldn't be rushing to pay down that mortgage as much as taking any incremental capacity and buying Bitcoin with it. So all of these are debatable, but I'll just start off by saying that the credit markets globally are around $300 trillion by my calculation and total financial assets in the world are about $900 trillion. So we haven't talked about one of my pet theses, or if that's even a word, my pet thesis is I eventually believe since I'm an engineer, uh, I eventually believe that Bitcoin will be used to price all energy. And you guys have heard Michael Saylor and, you know, I'm a big fan of thermodynamics, the first law of thermodynamics, conservation of energy. And if Bitcoin's the purest form of monetary energy ever, you, uh, it's not hard for me to uh, imagine a day when oil and natural gas are priced in Bitcoin. Why is that? Well, digital energy for natural resource energy, rather than natural resource energy for debasing US dollars, if you're Russia or potentially Saudi Arabia, I don't know, I'd much rather be getting Bitcoin as payment, the law of conservation of energy. Well, if that ever happens, I argue that, and I believe it will happen, uh, I argue that uh, Bitcoin will therefore be the reserve asset of the world. And if it's the reserve asset of the world, you start doing some math and you say, well, of the $900 trillion of financial assets in the world, if it's the reserve asset, how much is logical to think that Bitcoin could account for that? Meaning what share of the total addressable market? And I, you can throw out some numbers. Let's play a math game. If it's 10%, is it crazy to think it could be 10% of $900 trillion? I don't think it's crazy. 10% of $900 trillion is $90 trillion. $90 trillion divided by $21 million? Good gosh. Those are some big ass numbers. And as a credit guy that is always exposed to the downside of asymmetric risk, I want to own some Bitcoin that exposes me to the upside of that number. Okay. Right now, Bitcoin's trading. I don't even know. What is it? 50 something. Who cares? It's a rounding error compared to that outcome that I just presented to you where it's four and a half, excuse me, four and a half million dollars per coin. 100% 100% certainty, not even close. But even if you give me give me a 2% certainty that that is the, or a 2% probability rather, that that is the outcome, and you just start seeing how cheap Bitcoin is on a presently trading basis versus things like one, my CDS valuation, or two, total addressable market with some sort of probability that uh, that, that total addressable market someday comes to fruition. Yeah, for the energy um, topic, we, we wanted to talk about the North American uh, kind of future for Bitcoin mining, but let's, mm-hmm. I wanted to keep that to the end. Okay. Uh, before we get there, I wanted to knock out a real, hopefully this is a quick one, uh, sure. on CBDCs. So, you know, we, we are Bitcoiners. We talk about Bitcoin being this, this new alternative, but yes. central bankers are thinking CBDCs uh, offer them a way to maybe revamp the system or something like that. So what do you have any um, thoughts on CBDCs? I do. They're just digital fiat. So digital fiat with tracking. 
So, okay, so they are, uh, you know, CBDC, central bank digital currencies that can be expanded with no supply cap. And oh, by the way, you can be traced pretty easily. So if you were at a protest, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but it's certainly not a zero probability event either. Well, you were at the, uh, you know, uh, you were at an anti something rally. How do we know that? Well, because you spent uh, money at a restaurant and we tracked it using your CBDC. Uh, you're not you're not in our favorite uh, books anymore, right? Um, so all what what is CBDC? So it's digital fiat, yeah, digital fiat with tracking. So first of all, it's really bad, and then it's really bad with an asterisk. Okay, um, meaning when I say really bad, it it it's it functions well as a uh, as a currency uh, in in uh, rather than using a barter system. Yeah, you go into a, a restaurant and you pay with money rather than you know trading your socks for. I don't know, a, a glass of cola. Um, you know, the barter system versus currency. This is the CBDCs and fiat work well for short-term um, currency uh, and, and uh, economic uh, uh, efficacy, but they don't work well as a store of value. That's proven time and time again. And that's why you have a parallel system called Bitcoin. Greg, part of uh, Ansel and my pushback on the typical CBDC narrative is we're actually skeptical that they're even going to ship, right? Um, Something that I like to say to ETH heads and altcoiners is, you know, where's Bitcoin going to be when your thing finally ships? But I could, I think I could levy the same thing against these central bankers is like, okay, when you're done evaluating, when you're done with your experiments, when you're done with your airdrops, like, where's Bitcoin going to be? You know, I think Bitcoin's already winning hearts and minds, and it's already winning the narrative war. And none of these things have shipped yet. Maybe China, but I'm no one else has shipped. You. No, look, I, I, I'm, you, guys are, you guys are much more in touch with this than I am. Um, you're younger. This is natural for you guys. I am, in my professional practice, I'm a Bitcoin maxi. Do I have exposure to some of these other things from some other asset management uh, platforms? Yes, I'll be honest. I've invested in a firm in, in uh, LA called Arca. I'm very fond of the, their performance and their uh, their risk management techniques. But these guys, uh, you know, they own some Bitcoin, but they also own other uh, other projects. Uh, I am, have no idea what any other project does. Uh, because I'm 100% focused on Bitcoin. Why? I believe, once again, Bitcoin is to be the anti-fiat. I can get risk in other ways, shapes, or forms, in equity markets, credit markets, NFTs, if I wanted to. I don't currently do it. Right now, I'm full-time focused on Bitcoin because I actually believe that uh, my kids need this more than anything that I've ever seen. Uh, I I definitely feel that, and uh, I think that that's very, very fair. Um, so I guess let's talk about the problem that Bitcoin solves, right? You know, really, it's the problem of central bankers. It's a problem that the gold world never could tr- transition to the digital world. Um, it's the problem, you know, there's many kind of light layers to the issue that Bitcoin is, is, uh, is solving. But at this present day, we're living in a world where governments are issuing massive debt um, massive stimulus, you know, the Biden administration, they just passed the, you know, was at 1.9 or something trillion and immediately the next day, okay, now 3 trillion, like, you know, uh, just uh, an immediate turnaround there. Like, where does this end? Can you just give us the big picture here? It does not. 
it does not end because it's mathematically impossible to end. Okay. So, and this is really neat that you bring this up because, you know, fiat is, I, I, I don't hope fiat ends anytime soon anyway, because, you know, we need this. It's not like you want to, uh, you need a fiat system because you, you don't want the world to, uh, I don't anyway, um, perhaps some Bitcoin maxis could be accused of wanting it. I don't want to, uh, deteriorate into absolute, uh, you know, Mad Max, Mad Max. Yeah. You know, so, so here is, here is what I know. I know that Bitcoin offers an alternative as a store of value and that store of value is what's important to me. I want to pass essentially money or energy. Now I'm going to borrow the phrase from Ross Stevens, uh, who's a NIDIG, uh, he wrote a shareholder letter for Stone Ridge Capital. It was beautiful. If you guys haven't read it, you got to read that letter. And he defined, I'll paraphrase, I'm almost certain I'm getting this correct. He goes, money has always been a technology for transferring the value of your time or work or energy expended today for consumption in the future. So storing the value of your time, energy, or work, that's thermodynamics right there, work and energy for consumption in the future. Now, fiat debases that, meaning think if you were, you know, a, a college kid working summers and a long time ago for Mila, but let's say I, and I did do this, I worked on roof, uh, pounding asphalt shingles. And I just think about that energy that I expended in the hot summer sun. And I haven't really used that money yet. Okay. But I'll tell you, that 20 bucks I may have made for five hours of work 30 years ago might be worth right now. I don't know, five bucks. Are you kidding me? I worked an entire day for $5 because that's what's happened. And that work and energy that I put into that house was valuable for that house, but I was debased over that entire period of time. Cause I haven't really used that 20 bucks yet because I've been accumulating money. That's what happens when you work, you tend to accumulate money. You don't need it until you either want to retire or, you know, in, in certain cases, something bad happens. Like something bad's happened to me. I'm a partner in eight Irish pubs in Montreal, eight Irish pubs in Montreal. That's not a great business to have right now. Right? So some of that work or time or energy that I've accumulated in the past, I need to draw on right now. Well, I'm not happy if that drawing power is worth less than the, you know, substantially less than the amount of energy I expended at, at time zero. So yeah, this is the reality. That's what uh, you're trying to protect against. And that's, again, I just think it's a beautiful way of money has always been a technology for transferring and storing value for the future consumption. Yeah, can't argue with that. Um, I wanted to bring this into kind of a we, on this show, we talk about inflation versus deflation a lot because, um, you know, we, we're skeptical. I, I'm, I was a gold bug for a decade before I became a Bitcoiner. And so I'm very well aware of this inflationary argument. Yes. But at the same time, uh, I can see that, you know, oil went to zero and commodities have been in bear markets for two decades. So I can see that there is some like deflationary force here. And um, so we, I, this show takes a skeptical look at that. I also want, uh, think that we are in this like deflationary environment because all of this dead weight of these 
the debt around the world. Uh, you do more QE, you do more fiscal spending, and it just adds more dead weight to the economy. It can never grow. It can never get out of the, the morass that it's in. And so we never have credit expansion. So it's just like this constant deflationary pressure. Um, do you see that? And um, Great question. Can this I ask is, you? Oh, keep, keep go going. Sorry, no. keep going. Keep on. How old, how old are say, you, Lance? How old are you? I'm 40. So that's pretty impressive that, you know, you were a gold bug. Um, you know, that that's... So you're 90, you, you were 95% of the way there uh, yeah. before you found Bitcoin. And to your credit, you, you switched your view. And I'll just take a shot at Peter Schiff uh, that you know, <laughs> that's how you're supposed to do it, okay? You're, when the info changes and a better resource comes, you're supposed to adjust your uh, portfolio accordingly. So well done. So look, I, there's two things. Have you guys read the book or heard of the book by Jeff Booth called uh, The Price of Tomorrow? Man, it's a great read, okay? And and you know, you you talk about some reasons you believe there's deflation in the world. I believe that there's, you know, I, I'll take his side where he believes it's because of technology, uh, which may or may not be true. Um, there's certainly deflationary pressures, but then there's also inflationary pressures. Uh, let, let's look at the value or the price of a college education, the price of your house. Why is that really inflation, or is that the unit of account that's being used to measure? the value of your house is actually declining. So is your house going up in value or is it just that your house is maintaining its value as a place to live, but the unit of account is declining because that's what fiats do. They debase. So therefore it looks like your house is going up in price. There's a lot of arguments on the inflationary front is pure is true inflation, CPI, Chapwood. Should it be measured as the growth in money supply? I think there's a lot of merit to that, but I'm not an inflation bug per se. I'm a credit bug, okay? I think that too many people have focused on inflation and, and rightly so for the past 40 years and inflation has declined. But right now they're focusing on inflation going forward and that's not what you need to be focusing on. Lenders, a rate is set with inflation expectations as well as credit. And it's no longer just about inflation. In fact, the overriding concern is credit. Hence, once again, why I look at the credit default markets. Inflation could go up or it could go down, or you could believe Yellen and um, uh, drawing a blank on the guy's name right now. He's on TV. I should look. Uh, Powell. Um, Powell. Look, yeah, yeah. Look, it, look, here's the funny thing, guys. It's, it's, in my opinion, it's not even close to being about inflation. It's all about credit because the debt balances of every single country in the world indicate that you need to be more concerned about credit than about inflation. Awesome. Christian, so, go. Yeah. Well, I just want to jump in and, you know, it could be, you know, maybe you could be on to a better signal here. Um, we know that, you know, in today's world, credit is a key part of how the monetary system works. Uh, the, I personally am not a deflationist, inflationist, any of that. What I've kind of honed in on is something that Ansel said is that this is a monetary hurricane. Like there's a lot of powers and winds and forces that are kind of playing in this like strange, uh, difficult to look into ecosystem. And uh, every time, you know, Powell or Yellen or Congress makes a big move, every time the CCP makes a big move, you know, they're just adding another force into uh, just this economic craziness that the world is currently enduring and living in. 
Uh, does that kind of like what? It, what's your take it, it on is, that? It, 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 great question. And so, so you know, I sort of dodged the question before. You know, they need to do this. Okay, let's just walk through the math. Okay, so typically, if you um, measure the uh, ability of a company or country to incur more debt, it is uh, you look at total debt, which is the nom- uh, numerator divided by GDP which is the denominator and that's GDP. Why? Well, that's your tax base. Okay. So you think of your total debt, which has an interest obligation on it divided by the, the economy, which is your, the size of the economy, which is your tax base. Now total, uh, let, let's just take the whole world and not just differentiate it by governments. And uh, we'll look at total global debt, total global debt to total global GDP before, before, the COVID crisis was about four times. Okay. Why do you care about corporate and add corporate in there? Because don't forget interest expense on corporates is tax deductible. So you need to add it in there. So a four in the numerator multiplied by the average coupon on that debt, which is just the amount of interest obligations. Let's just put a coupon on that of 3%. That's low. But four multiplied by three is 12. That means your denominator needs to grow at 12% per year just to keep pace with your numerator, right? It's pretty simple, isn't it? That means that global GDP needs to grow at 12% annually just to keep pace with your interest obligations. Good God, we're not even going to come close to that. And that's before we're adding all these other deficits to the numerator. Guys, it's over. Doesn't mean that fiat's all have to go to zero overnight, but that system, it's almost like you're 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 saying, well, you know, this dam is going to explode, but I'm really worried about holding my finger in the dike over here. It's only math, okay? That's why you need an alternative system, and that's what Bitcoin does for me. I don't want the fiat system to collapse. And let's hope it can continue going for, gosh, I hope as long as it could. Just be aware, though, that the price of the fiat system is a debasing currency. The debasing is mathematically programmed because of the formula I just laid out for you. And the error term is the currency, meaning the currency has to be printed to solve that imbalance. It's, it's math, guys. It's not that difficult it can be accepted. And if you think MMT is the solution, I would say, hey, let's bring it on and don't even pay taxes. But I don't want that because that'll make it, 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 it'll spiral faster and faster. But the debt, sp- debt, D-E-B-T spiral that we are in is mathematically a certainty. And thus the debasing is a mathematical certainty as well. Can the world survive that? Yeah. Can it do it forever? No. You need to hedge that. I want to flip the subject over to mining and maybe, maybe we can talk about like this transition. You know, you said like, you don't, you don't want the fiat system necessarily blow up right away. And I, I'd understand that, you know, a lot of people want like an ease out. Um, and a lot of people see, you know, the North American dominance, us dominance, us hegemony as being something that is going to blow up as the dollar and all of, you know, the existing system kind of blows up. Um, Antel here is actually bullish on, you know, North America and a lot of things that happen here because of our 
freedom in general, but I'm kind of curious, you know, what, what is your take? I know that you're very involved in mining um, with uh, Validus Energy and, and, is, and, you know, natural resources here in the North American continent. Uh, this is a pretty kind of wide ranging question, but, you know, what's your take on, you know, energy consumption, North America, Bitcoin, and, you know, what the future of this continent kind of looks like, you know, given all of these factors at play? So, wow, that's a heck of a question. And, uh, and thanks for asking it. Um, here, here's the truth. Okay, let's, let's start with, I agree with Ansel, okay? If this is going to work, it's because it works because of uh, things like open source software. What a beautiful thing, right? Collaboration with no centralized uh, control, uh, even on the programming side. Uh, it's beautiful, as Jack Mahlers would say, don't mess with open source programming. You'll lose every single time, right? So that that freedom of expression, some would call it freedom of speech, uh, is, well, look, it's your First Amendment, right? It's not quite ingrained in the Canadian culture like it is in the United States. And, and, and that's I, I wish it was, but Canada just happens to be, uh, at one point it was until a few years ago, the United States' largest trading partner. Gosh, don't you think we are the luckiest people in the world uh, living, second luckiest perhaps uh, after the United States, living along the world's largest undefended border uh, and having the richest country in the world as uh, our trading partner. So yeah, that open freedom in both countries, uh, it, it allows for some beautiful things to happen. Amazon, all Apple, you would not have this, this developed in these, in your country for a reason. Um, what, what though is, is important to understand? First of all, the U S dollar as reserve currency is a beautiful, uh, position that the U S has. Did they get it? Uh, you know, how did they get it? Well, you know, you know it was that Bretton Woods was, uh, some would say uh, they were just lucky, world's largest economy. Do they deserve to be world's uh, reserve currency? I think it was a good decision, but man, is that a valuable thing to have? So people, you know, I'm going to jump around a bit here. After World War II, um, the U.S. Uh, had a GDP to total debt, a total debt to GDP that that uh, was uh, in the area of where it is today, just on the government basis. But the difference was they had a trade surplus with everybody in the world. Right now, the U.S. has a trade deficit with just about every country in the world. That right there is why you can't get yourself back on side at the government level. Because if you run through the C plus I plus G plus foreign exchange to balance your GDP, you always know that you need foreign inflows to your country to balance the trade deficit. Okay. It's not going to happen again. Don't try and say, Oh, it happened in 1946. So we'll be able to get ourselves back on site. You had a trade surplus. You are the world's richest country. And now everyone trades with you and you buy more things than you sell to the rest of the world. Okay. So is that a good thing? Well, gosh, yeah. Cause you're still the richest country in the world and you still have the world's best darn army and navy and there's cost to defending that uh, reserve currency status believe me one of the things i like to say is oh yeah bitcoin if you do actually believe bitcoin wastes energy which i don't but if you do do you think there's also maybe some energy that's uh, used by the u.s navy to uh, defend its reserve currency status i think there probably is okay so don't tell me that you know uh bitcoiners are uh, boiling the oceans and the u.s navy isn't uh, adding its own little uh, uh 
you know, energy, a consumption to that, uh, to that thing. So I think I'm going in a lot of, a lot of different directions here, but what I do believe, okay, I do believe that yes, Bitcoin is a better uh, system. It's fixed. Uh, it does not use, in my opinion, it consumes energy waste. It does not waste energy. That's very key. All the grids in North America are set up for redundancy. So if you're mining Bitcoin off of a grid, uh, it is uh, 90% of the time that grid is over, uh, is, is over capacity, meaning you know, it's, it's underutilized. In other words, it's set for peak, peak demand when peak demand only occurs less than 10% of the time. So that means there's turbines that are turning from a, it could be from a water, uh, you know, a, a huge hydroelectric dam in Quebec that if that power is not being used, well, you might as well be using it to mine Bitcoin because it makes sense to create a revenue stream from that. And in doing that, Bitcoin can stabilize that grid. I believe it does. But, you know, then there's a lot of people that say, well, what happened in Texas uh, recently? Well, Bitcoin miners are to, to blame. Come on. Well, this is what we're, uh, this is what we're battling. So what am I involved in at Validus Power? This is really exciting on my end. Uh, we are trying to, and we're not just trying, we are able to mine Bitcoin with a 35 megawatt generator. That's essentially a jet engine. Okay. This is not a farm tractor. This is a jet engine on the back of an 18 wheeler that you wheel into a flare gas project. It's otherwise just being vented into the atmosphere in the form of methane and if it's not being burned, it's uh, destroying the ozone. And if it is being burned because it's being flared, you're creating carbon dioxide and your acid rain and all these other things. Well, we go in and we take that energy supply. We cleanse it on a fuel conditioning skid. We run it through a 35 megawatt jet engine. It's scalable. Okay. So you want to make a really big project? Well, you put four or six or eight of these jet engines in sync and all of a sudden you're mining 200 megawatts worth of power depending on the gas supply obviously and you're mining bitcoin guys this is absolutely a beautiful thing okay for people that think that you know esg guys that you know they're they're i have my issues with the esg guys because i don't think they've actually done all the math they should but at the end of the day uh if they can embrace that hey Bitcoin's using, consuming energy waste and actually could be helping clean the environment. And it doesn't happen for free because Bitcoin is being mined. And if you have a presence on the, uh, within the uh, uh, global network, yeah, you're getting your share of Bitcoin and uh, paying for uh, creating a revenue stream that otherwise would have just been vented into the atmosphere. Christian, do you got something or? Yeah, uh, well, actually, I was going to ask. So, like, you know, what? How, why is that important for North America? Just to kind of bring oh, it. Okay, full so, circle. so first of all, we have tons of flare gas in North America. There's actually even more flare gas in the Middle East, unfortunately. No, when I say unfortunately, but where's ESG taking hold uh, most prominent? What, what is ESG? Just for you know, even myself, environmental and social means. governance. So ESG, um, there are movements uh, by some of the largest pension managers in the world to uh, what's called ESG uh, uh, sensitive investing. Some of these pension funds led by BlackRock cannot actually own energy companies, fossil fuel companies anymore because their board has decided that they want to be ESG compliant. And, you know, fossil fuels are 
not ESG um, uh, compliant. Let's put it that way. Uh, There's always exceptions. They're the boogeyman. Well, here's the funny thing. And then what's the best performing sub asset of the S and P class of the S and P this year? Energy, right? So all these guys that have successfully boxed themselves out of the uh, investing in ESG uh, or, you know, in energy companies, well, they've just missed the best performing uh, class in the uh, 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 subset in the, in the uh, S&P 500. And that's typical that that happens. That's what markets do to you, right? Markets exist to make you look stupid. That's exactly what markets do. And they are certainly making those ESG guys look stupid this year because they don't have enough energy exposure. Well, this, I'm not going to wrap my, myself in the ESG cape, but hey, there's a lot to be said for this uh, solution for ESG uh, investors. So what else does it do, though? It cleans the environment. What else? Let's take it one derivative down the, the, the uh, uh, first derivative. Right now, most uh, ASIC chip manufacturing occurs overseas. And if I was the United States with the world's most uh, dominant military, I'd actually be pretty concerned if I couldn't get my chips uh, if I went to war with, uh, you know, or if there was an issue with one of these countries that has all the chip manufacturing in it. Dang, uh, it's not good. Uh, well, that's what's happened. Uh, could Bitcoin right now uh, bring some of this chip manufacturing back to North American soil? I argue it could because, uh, you know, you want your ASIC chip manufacturing. Uh, which, you know, ASIC stands for, it's just application specific integrated circuit. It means that you're just silicon. You you could bring all the car manufacturing uh, or the car chips back to foundries in North America, North America as well. I would argue it'd be very good for not just jobs, but military security. Uh, So it could that could Bitcoin lead that uh, charge. I a hundred percent believe it could. Uh, The jury will be out for a long time. Why? Again, Bitcoin's only, what is it? 12 years old one third of my entire trading career. (laughs) Like to me, I'm like, wow, you know, this is really exciting because we've defined, we have a a network that's worth $1 trillion now, the fastest growth ever of a network in terms of valuation to reach the $1 trillion valuation. That's Bitcoin. And what are all the other things that it could uh, help to solve? We talked about ASICS chips. Then you start thinking about what can it disintermediate? And this is the total adjust uh, a different way of looking at the total uh, addressable market, Christian, is if you think of Bitcoin, the bottom of the funnel is taking energy from the ground and sucking the energy up like an hourglass, okay? And think of the hourglass as the center of the nozzle. You're sucking energy from the ground, so the sand is going up through an hour- hourglass. It gets to the Bitcoin miner, and it's turned into digital energy. And then that digital energy gets distributed throughout the world for use in store value or all sorts of different applications. Uh, could be on a platform, a digital wallet. It could be uh, in, in an exchange. It could be asset management, ETFs, like I was involved in in Canada. Point is the funnel at the top, the nozzle, the funnel at the bottom. The adjustable market at the bottom is, I'm going to say, $20 trillion dollars. The nozzle, if you include Bitcoin, uh, the value of Bitcoin is $1 trillion, And the value of all the miners in the world, I'm going to say is less than one quarter of the value of Bitcoin. So maybe $1.25 trillion. 
So you have 20 trillion flowing into 1.25 trillion. Hey, but what is the value of the top of the funnel that it can disintermediate? Holy crap. Okay. And this is what NIDIG sees. And this is why Morgan Stanley and New York Life and Mass Mutual and George Soros, which are big in the top of the funnel traditional system said, hey, I got to get me a piece of this vertical. That's Bitcoin, which is digital energy from the ground, natural energy from the ground converted to digital energy and Bitcoin distributed into the new financial system, top of the funnel. And that's big big money. Yeah. One of the reasons why I'm bullish on North America, a lot of people are interested in Bitcoin for maybe the energy stuff or the cultural aspect or, um, uh, you know, fixing the culture, fixing fiat money and fiat food and fiat, all these other things. Um, uh, but I kind of wrap this all into like this North American Renaissance, because I, I agree that over the last 50 years or so, you know, the U S has exported its industrial base around the world and the emerging markets have benefited dramatically from the expansionary policies in the fiat system as well as the u.s offshoring everything and i think when this collapses or when this turns around uh, there's going to be a reverse of that so there's going to be a lot of onshoring a lot of capital is going to flow back to north america and uh yeah the u.s has these two beautiful trade partners right on the border. They have security on both coasts. And, and I mean, it's just a, a beautiful situation. Um, also, the U.S. became the largest economy in the world before it had a reserve currency. So right. I think it is. it might be more of, I, I believe it is more of a burden than it is a privilege to have the, the reserve currency. And oh, really? I'm just, okay. interesting. Yeah, I'm just, okay. I'm just super, super bullish on North America when uh, all of this uh, fiat system goes away and we, we get to big one. And then the, the energy sector, I mean, 10 or 20 years ago, we couldn't have imagined the U S being, you know, a net exporter of energy. Yes. But now, now that's, and, and with that, we would never thought uh, the U S or North America would have been a Bitcoin mining hub, but now with the shale revolution, it is becoming an energy hub yeah, and we, we gotta Bitcoin be fits that right that. in there. Still, you know, it's moving. The, the percentage uh, is moving higher, but it's, uh, yeah, we got a lot of work to do. But hey, let me, let me take this opportunity to tell you how impressed I am with a 40-year-old that's, uh, that thinks like you, okay? Um, that's, so, that's what will solve this. Uh, you know, there will be a parallel system. I, I think this fiat, again, I don't, I don't want it to end. Uh, you don't, I'm promising you, if you have kids, you don't actually want this fiat system to, 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 to stop working overnight. Is there a risk? Yes. Do you hedge that risk? Absolutely. Do you hope for better solutions that allow for both systems to, uh, to exist in a symbiotic relationship? You hope so. Okay. Um, you talked about a North American Renaissance. That's, that's, Big stuff, okay? For a 40-year-old, I, I applaud you, okay? Um, I certainly wasn't thinking like you were when I was 40 years old. Uh, and and this is perhaps what Bitcoin, Bitcoin. does. Yeah, Bitcoin it, makes it, you optimistic. It, it, yeah. it, well, it not only makes you optimistic, it actually gets you to, to, to examine so many other things that too many people right now take for granted or, or just assume that's the way it works because it's always worked that way, right? Well, why do we do it that way? Well, because we've always done it that way. doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. So what you showed me, and, and this is what I see on, on things like Bitcoin Twitter is, you know, these people, young kids, uh, younger than me, certainly, okay, they, they ask these questions that are absolutely friggin brilliant. And I applaud you guys. This is, as an old guy, 
that spent 32 years in the markets, man, oh man, I wish that I was surrounded by kids like you my whole life. What's even more bullish is the 18 year olds that, uh, that are chatting and uh, tweeting oh, yeah. at me who oh, are yeah. putting out some incredible, incredible okay. stuff. So that's what uh, makes that solves problems. Right. Christian. I mean, come on, I can't say it any other way. That's why the U S is, and will continue to be, I hope as a Canadian, I still hope the U S maintains its global uh, leadership in so many fronts. Why is that? Because dang it, you guys do the, do most things correctly, okay? They're, everybody makes mistakes, uh, but I align with your thinking process. I benefited from paying, paying. I paid money to go down to a school in the United States so that I could learn the difference between our two cultures. And let me tell you, that was money that was so well spent. Because, you know, you guys generally put your pants on one leg at a time, just like I do. But I need to learn the difference between the two cultures and, and there is big difference in terms of risk taking, uh, uh, capacity. Um, can Canadians tend to be a lot more conservative from a risk taking you guys are like, man, oh man, I'm going to make the next Amazon. Can you think of for a second, think about the audacity of, uh, What's his name there from Amazon uh, starting this company? Bezos. I just Bezos. Bezos. I just thought of this the other day, though. Like, I just ordered something on Amazon, and I'm like, it's incredible what I can get that 20 years ago, I could not even have come up with anything close to this type of selection that benefits me not just materially, but also on a price basis. And it all had to start with a guy that basically designed this. And you see pictures of him sitting in an office with, you know, he's trying to disintermediate the Walmarts of the world. And the people are like, kid, you're, 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 you're not even going to have a chance. And guess what? 10 years later, he's bigger than at just, he's the biggest right in, in retail and, 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 and God bless well, I don't want to sound too, too, but God bless America. Okay. Like, I mean, it's just crazy good. Uh, but, there's problems. Uh, there's people that don't understand that. They they figure they're entitled. Uh, they got to tax the rich. I, I don't want to get hate mail and everything like this. So I'll just say your country uh, tends to do most things better than 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 uh, other countries. Well, I'll just add one quick thing: is my daughter is turning twelve this year, and she has never lived in a world without Bitcoin. So we, so isn't this sort of it's amazing. for the future too, right? Yeah. Um, I have my kids, uh, all three of them, they're a little older than yours, uh, but all three of them know it. They understand the principles of uh, uh, scarcity, uh, divisibility, portability, uh, transferability. Uh, I would just encourage two things for anybody who's listening. Uh, that's a Bitcoin, that they're questioning Bitcoin. I want you to go to the bank and try and send an international wire transfer anywhere in the world. I just want you to go and try and send even 500 bucks internationally. Okay. And then experience the pain of going through the conventional banking system to try and match bank accounts across border and then pick up a Bitcoin wallet and, uh, send $20 somewhere in the world. That's not domestic. And I've done it to Australia. In fact, New Zealand, uh, to people I've never met to causes I support, uh, and it, it settles in 10 minutes, no questions asked. It's the most beautiful technology I've ever seen in my life. It's uh, decentralized. You, go, you guys know it all. And, and, and the kids are going to grow up with this and they're going to, they're, it's going to be second nature to them. Whereas for some old fart like me, like this is so un second nature that I see it and I'm just blown away and I love it. 
Greg, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on. I think we could talk for another hour, to be honest. But I'm, I'm, I'm uh, certainly I'm, open, open for future invites. If I don't, something, you know, I'm going to say something stupid on Twitter, and I'll become the, uh, uh, you know, the the anti uh, whatever. I'll just be not persona non grata. Bitcoiners okay slay their that. heroes, so you might get slayed. We all, uh, we're, we're all susceptible of getting slayed here. Well, here, here's the funny thing. I'm doing this for my kids. Like I'm learning from Bitcoin Twitter. I, I speak my mind. You, you don't manage risk for. 32 years without always I'll, I'll i'll say this you 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 need to listen to the counter arguments because if you just want confirmation bias if you just want to listen to bitcoiners uh preach how good bitcoin's going to be you need to also listen to the guys that are telling going to tell you that bitcoin's not going to succeed because you never know maybe they'll have a point you have yeah. to manage risk by changing your position as uh, as the information changes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Greg, I mean, w- want to give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find out more about you, where people can find more about your writing. Um, after uh, your John Vallis episode, I checked out your website uh, and a bunch of the content there. Uh, let me tell you, some of it needs to come over to Bitcoin Magazine. We can find make it very discoverable, but um why, in why general I? I mean look look it's it's yeah. there to be downloaded for the world i'll send you the copy it's uh you know the guys i worked with the first guys that invited me on their uh, podcast i've done three with them and they actually want to turn this into a, a quasi book and i'm like look I, as if i ever did turn it into a book every cent of the proceeds would go to bitcoin core devs but i don't i'm not as good good enough of a writer to make that happen but yeah i want to share my thoughts i want people to poke holes in it uh i i i, I have conviction look why do I have conviction? Because I believe I've done this for 30 years. I don't think that I'm wrong. People could tell me they don't agree with me, but my methodology is 30 years of practice that I know it's right. Okay. It will it come to fruition that the world will see it in the same way? No, but I have that paper, uh, Christian and Ansel. It's been a pleasure. Uh, if you guys please take that link and share it with everybody. Uh, I'll forward it to you in the, in the notes that, uh, the email, but you, you may have seen it. I'm getting so many requests for it. It's actually very flattering and, uh, you know, DMing me, uh, guys DM me and they're like, you know, this is so fantastic. And I'm like, man, oh man, there's another thing that I never would have been exposed to because social media didn't exist when I was uh, growing up. All right, Greg, again, why don't you plug your Twitter into place that people can find you, but yeah, let's wrap it up, wrap it up. Yeah, so it's Foss, Greg Foss. So A F O S S or ampersand Foss F O S S Greg G R E G, last name Foss again. So uh, that was assigned to me by Bitcoin. Excuse me, by Twitter, and I sort of said, "Hey, I can't think of a better one, so I'm going with that." <laughs> and, uh, and 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 it sort of worked because uh, I don't even forget it. You know, like uh, if I was something with <laughs> underscores and everything like that, yeah, I'd I'd probably forget that. So yeah, no Nick, a double crazy. underscore Carter. That's the, that's like, come on, man. Like he could, he could have come up with something better, but all right, guys, make sure to it's give Greg a, a follow. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you both. Okay. And keep, keep being you guys. All right. 40 year old kids that are making such a difference in the world. I applaud you guys. And I thank you. Okay. My kids need you. you. Your kids need you. So thanks again. Great to meet thank you. you. Thanks boss. for coming on. Thank you, guys. And hey, to all the listeners, for more FedWatch episodes, uh, make sure to subscribe to the podcast feed. Make sure to give us those five-star reviews. We bring you the best in macro, uh, folks like Greg, folks like Jeff Booth. 
Um, man, I you know I love doing this show and I love kind of you know highlighting what is happening in the world uh, of macro and bringing in Bitcoin. You guys can follow me at ck underscore snarks. You can follow Ansel at Ansel Lindner. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research. Mm-hmm.